Well, good morning, everyone. I'm John Schmidt, and I'm so glad to be here with you this morning. Uh, this whole series entitled is entitled, Jesus, Who Is He? We're looking at the Gospel of Luke, a number of stories and teachings from Jesus' ministry, and we're trying to answer that question. Luke answered the question very well. He presented an orderly account of the life and times of Jesus so we could know who Jesus is. And today we're going to give you another installment, an answer to that question. And there's an outline inside your bulletin entitled, Jesus is a Good Neighbor. If you want to know who Jesus is, this whole series is giving you a number of answers to that question. And Luke points out very clearly through one of the more famous stories that Jesus ever told, the story of the Good Samaritan, that Jesus is a good neighbor. I'd like to talk to you about why that's important for you and me to consider today. But before we begin, I'd like to have a word of prayer. Would you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, I thank you for the opportunity to be here today and just to look at your word. It's our guide in all matters of faith and practice. I thank you that Luke was faithful to record what Jesus said and did in an orderly account so we could understand for ourselves how important it is to be like him and to be a good neighbor. Open our eyes today to the truth in Jesus' teachings and help us obey them. I pray these things in the name of Christ our Lord. Please move me out of the way and say whatever you want said to us today. Amen. There are some ushers uh, that are up that will come up and down the aisles. That if you raise your hand, they'll bring you a pen. You can fill in the blanks as we go along. And the first line on your outline has a couple of blanks in it. And, and the answers in those blanks are simply these. That Jesus commands us to love God and to love our neighbors. Jesus commands us to love God and to love our neighbors. This is from Luke chapter 10. One day, an expert in the religious law, in other words, he was an expert in Old Testament studies, he stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus replied, well, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? The man answered, well, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and all your mind. And you must love your neighbors yourself. Right, Jesus told him, do this and you will live. Now, the man was quoting what was known then and is known now as the great commandment. The great commandment. And it was really, a, uh, it was two commandments found in Scripture put together from Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19.18. On another occasion, when Jesus was asked the same question, Jesus answered the same way. And this is from Mark's gospel. Someone asked him once, Jesus, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with your heart, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is like the second is this: love your neighbor as yourself. There's no commandment greater than these. This is the great commandment, and they always went back to back, or they always went hand in hand, just like peanut butter and jelly, or whatever your favorite combination might be. They just go together. You have to put these two commandments together. And the reason why I made a life application for us here is because we're only kidding ourselves if we think we can love God without loving others. I'm only kidding myself. I think I can love God without loving you. Or you can say, hey, I love God, but I'm not going to love the person that's done me wrong or people that live in a different country or whoever else you might pick. John, one of Jesus' disciples, wrote this in 1 John 4. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. I mean, John was pretty vague, don't you think? I mean, that's, no, that's not vague at all. Hey, I love God, I don't, but I hate my brother. Well, you're a liar. You don't love God then. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. 
And he's given us this command, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Now, the reasoning behind this is pretty clear. At the beginning of this year, we started in Genesis, how God was a creator of heaven and earth. And in the first couple of pages of the Bible, we find out that human beings are created in God's image. God views the whole human race as his children, created in his image. Now, disobedient children, to be sure, but his children. And so you come up to God and say, God, I love you, but I hate the children that you've created. I hate your kids. Well, that would be like saying, coming up to me and going, John, I love you, but I hate your sons. Or John, I love you, but I hate your wife. Well, we're not going to hit it off. I mean, that doesn't even make sense. Hey, John, I'll be a great friend to you, but just keep me away from your children because I can't stand them. I'll go, well, you're going to have to understand something. I love my kids. And I'd do anything for them. If you're going to love me, you've got to love them. Now, if I know that much as an earthly father, how much more so is it true of our heavenly father? And so that's why these two commandments are always stitched together. That's why they're always back to back. And Jesus says, this is the great commandment. In fact, in that one reference, I wish I would have had you circle the words most important. The most important commandment. And that's going to play a big part in the next section we read. Because this expert in Old Testament studies pushed Jesus a little more to define what he meant. But I want to make one more note here real quickly. If you take the whole Bible and you summarize it, it's all about relationships. It's all about relationships. You're going to hear that over and over again here at Center Point, that it's all about relationships. In uh, the first Bible study I was a part of in college, before we started the Bible study, uh, the leader of the study was a gentleman by the name of Rex Gore. And he said, open up your Bible to a place where there's a cover sheet there. And I want you to write this in the cover. It's all about relationships. And I did that. It says, uh, Rex Gore, 1983. It says, all about relationships. Only on the, the cover leaf of my Bible, it also, he said, add one more word, add stupid. It's all about relationships, stupid. And I didn't add that in your bulletin. You can add that if you want. Uh, but the reason, and we all asked him, we said, well, why do you want us to add the word stupid? He goes, because you're going to forget that. You're going to forget that. As you go along being a Christian, you're all of a sudden going to begin to think it's about me being better than everybody else. That I'm outperforming others. And you'll forget it's all about the relationship. And I wish I could tell you that he was wrong. Hadn't been wrong. There's been times in my life I've been stupid. And I've forgotten that the whole Bible is about a right relationship with God and a right relationship with others. By the way, that's how we set up Centerpoint. These meetings on Sunday morning, these worship services, we're doing our best to create an environment here that will help you grow in your relationship with God. And our worship team works hard to help us lift our voices together and sing praises to God. We work hard at making sure we have outlines and teachings from God's Word so that you can hear God's voice and apply it to your life and grow closer to Him. It's all to help us love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But the second commandment, to love each other, to love your neighbors as yourself, that's why we set up connect groups that meet all throughout the week. We're in summertime, and a lot of connect groups are taking a break for a few weeks, but beginning August, you're going to hear a big push on that again. And the reason why is because you and I need others in our lives. And to grow in our love of others... We need to serve and we need to meet together. And so that's why we set up uh, the ministry of this church this way. So we're doing what's most important, loving God and loving others. 
because that was what's most important to Jesus. And point two on your outline continues the story because after this expert in Old Testament studies asked Jesus a question, uh, Jesus' answer apparently was unsettling to him. Hey, Jesus, how do I get eternal life? Well, how do you read it? What does the law say? You're the expert. Well, love God, love others with your whole heart. Love your neighbors yourself. Right, go do that. Now, this guy had been around Jesus. and Jesus loved some pretty unseemly people. I mean, he hung around with notorious sinners. And this expert in the Old Testament law going, now, you're not talking about those people, right? And you'll see that as we unpack this. Because point two is that Jesus took being a good neighbor to a whole new level. A whole new level. And Jesus said, well, let me tell you a story. You can see for yourself. Well, the man wanted to justify his actions, so he asked Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? I mean, you're kind of freaking me out here, Jesus, okay? What are you doing? And Jesus replied with a story. Now, there was a Jewish man who was traveling on a trip from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. A little history for you here. The route between Jerusalem and Jericho was notorious for being a bad route to take. Lots of twists and curves, a lot of short canyons, even some caves. Bandits hid out all the time here and would rob people and sometimes kill them. And so people very seldom ever made this trip alone. Usually they made it in large groups and even had some people who were armed who would travel with them to fend off robbers. And so this guy's going by himself and he'd be like walking through the worst part of town after sundown or the worst part of any city. Um, It would be very risky. But this guy is going by himself from Jerusalem to Jericho, and sure enough, he gets attacked by bandits. They strip him of his clothes, they beat him up, and they left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along. But when he saw the man lying there, he crossed over to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. And this would be analogous to a full-time pastor walking by and a staff person from a church walking by. Neither one offered to help. Then a despised Samaritan, if you can underline that, I'll come back to that in a minute, came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. And then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day he handed the innkeeper two silver coins telling him, take care of this man. If the bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by the bandits? Jesus asked. The expert in the law here, he replied, well, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, yes. Now go and do the same. Two questions to Jesus. Hey, how do I get eternal life? Well, how do you read it? Love the Lord your God with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Right, go do it. Well, but um, how are you to find a neighbor? And with this story, he just blew the circuits of this guy. And this guy could imagine being nice to a few people, but he would have never, ever uttered a story like Jesus did because it included a despised Samaritan. That's the note in your outline. Our neighbors, according to Jesus, are people of all races, languages, nationalities, and backgrounds. Now, this was something shocking. And again, you need to know a little history here. Israel, in the time of David, when David was the king of Israel, the real estate of Israel looked pretty much, it was about the same size as the land that the nation of Israel occupies today. When David died, 
his son Solomon became king and he expanded the territory a little bit larger. But after Solomon's reign, uh, Solomon had a son who was foolish and he lost the kingdom, he lost half the kingdom. The kingdom split because his son was very foolish in some decisions he made. And so the northern half of Israel became known, stayed with the name Israel and it became the nation of Israel. The southern half became the nation of Judah. And there was a civil war between these warring halves of Israel for about 200 years. In 722 BC, the Assyrians came in and they sacked the northern half, the nation of Israel. They took off all the leaders, killed thousands of people. They deported anybody with any ability or skill or leadership, and they scattered them. The Assyrians were, this was their whole method of conquering the world when they would conquer a particular country in order to prevent rebellion or riots or anything else, they would take the brain trust, the leadership trust, the best and the brightest of every country, and they'd deport them and scatter them all over the rest of the empire. Then other countries they'd conquered, they'd take their best and their brightest and move them to Israel. And so what happened was, in this northern part of the country, when these people came in, they brought in different languages, different customs, and different understandings of God idols and all sorts of worship practices that God had not commanded. And so the people in the northern half still worship God, but they also adopted the worship practices of all these people that moved in. The correct term for this is syncretism, where all these faiths were kind of shaken together. And you worship a little bit of God, a little bit of this God, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. And it just wasn't much. And the people in the south who remained faithful to God always looked upon these people as people who had lost their way. They had compromised the faith irrevocably. Not only that, but the people in the north, when all these people were moved, moved in, they intermarried with them. And God had commanded the Jewish people to marry other Jewish people and to be his people. And he would be their God. And they were not to marry outside of the Hebrew nation, outside of the Hebrew people. And so these people did in the north. And so the people in the south, even in the time of Jesus, in the time of this expert in the Old Testament who's reading this, they looked at the people in the north, who's, and the capital of the north was Samaria, by the way, so the people became known as Samaritans. These folks were half-breeds. Strange theology, strange practices, don't trust them. In fact, in polite conversation, you wouldn't even bring up the word. It was like a curse word to the people who lived in the south. To the righteous people. Well, Jesus told this story and he said, the full-time ministry guy, I mean the full-time minister, the full-time staff person, they walked around, but a Samaritan, a guy who would never get anything right, got the most important thing right. And you know the expert in the law thought very lowly of a Samaritan because when Jesus asked who got it right, he wouldn't even say the Samaritan. He said, well, the one who showed him mercy. I mean, he wouldn't even say the word. And so this story would have just been shocking. I mean, a Samaritan got it right, the most important thing, and the guy had just said himself, hey, what's the most important? Love God and love others. And Jesus said, well, the Samaritan was the only one of the three who got it right. Now, this should challenge us, and it's important to remember that according to Jesus, our neighbors are people of all races, languages, nationalities, and backgrounds. By the way, when you and I get to heaven, that's who we're going to meet there. 
This is quoting John, one of Jesus' disciples, quoting John again. This is from Revelation 5, 9. Had a glimpse of heaven at the end of history. And in heaven, John saw angelic beings worshiping Jesus. And they were singing this song. You are worthy because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Heaven's going to be a wonderful place. And there are going to be believers from every tribe and nation and language there. And it's going to be amazing to be united with them forever. So there's a life application for you and me. Loving our neighbor means taking action to meet the needs of others. It means taking action. The Samaritan was willing to do something about it. It's easy to give a lot of reasons why you can't be involved. We don't even know exactly why the priest and the Levite didn't stop. But the Samaritan didn't make excuses. He just did what was most important. In Matthew 25, this is Jesus again talking about judgment day at the end of history and how people will be separated into those who were righteous and faithful and those who are not. He said there will be a throne of judgment and all of the world will be gathered in front of this throne. And the one who is seated on the throne, referring to himself, Jesus said this, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger and you invited me into your home. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you cared for me. I was in prison and you visited me. And people he's talking to will say, well, Lord, when did we ever see you sick or in prison or naked and needing clothes? I mean, we don't remember that. And Jesus will answer, I assure you, when you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. When we obey the great commandment, when we love God and express that love by loving others, I mean, it's, it's pretty easy to say, I love God. We're all here singing songs with a wonderful worship team. Man, that's, that's fun. But if I'm really going to express that love and say, God, I love you and I love your kids, well, that gets hard because that's going to cost us time and effort and involvement in all kinds of complicated situations. You know, it's important to note on this, Jesus didn't just talk about this. Jesus modeled what it means to be a good neighbor. If you want to know who the ultimate good neighbor is, it was Jesus. Paul spoke about this in Philippians 2. He said, your attitude should be the same as that same that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he didn't demand and cling to his rights as God. He made himself nothing. He took the humble position of a slave and he appeared in human form. And in human form, he obediently humbled himself even further by dying a criminal's death on a cross. And because of this, God raised him up to the heights of heaven and gave him a name that is above every other name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus didn't just talk a good game. Jesus lived it. He was a good neighbor to each one of us. I mean, you and I weren't just kind of beaten up, half dead, lying on the side of the road with some stuff stolen. You and I were sinners in rebellion to God himself and in danger of the very wrath of God to be poured out on us because we deserved it. To be punished for our sins and separated from him forever in hell. And yet Jesus said, I'm going to get involved. I'm going to go down there. I'm going to take the place of these people on the cross. I'll die so they can live. I'll suffer so they don't have to. I'll pay the penalty which they can never pay. That's Jesus. 
And He's the ultimate good neighbor for you and me. And so Jesus kind of turned the expert, the Old Testament expert, his question on its head. And this is point three on your outline. Instead of asking, who is my neighbor? Jesus said, well, we should be asking, <coughs> excuse me, am I a good neighbor? Instead of worrying about whether or not others are living up to the qualifications to be my neighbor, I should just be a good neighbor to whoever comes along. I learned an important lesson about this. Um, I spent a year in a ministry program after college where I learned a lot about serving others and serving the Lord. One of the assignments in this ministry program was that each one of us needed to uh, select an assignment. You kind of drew some assignments out of a hat. That's the way we did it, where you would do some serving, but you would never be recognized by it. The task I drew was to be a person who adopted a mile of highway and yet never get any credit for it. So I adopted one high, I was living in Missouri at the time, I adopted one mile of highway in Missouri, and it said the Adopt-A-Mile program, and below the sign it said Anonymous. That was me for one year. And one of the guys in the ministry program uh, who helped supervise this thing was to teach us about serving for the right reasons, not for recognition. So one Saturday every month, in the morning, I'd go and pick up trash all along one, one mile on a ditch on one side of the road. And then after lunch, I'd work my way back down and pick up trash on the other side. I think I picked the trashiest mile in all of Missouri. <laughs> and people just chunked everything out of the window, apparently, on my mile. They must have hated Anonymous. I don't know what was going on. But there was a, a gentleman who was part of this ministry program, an older gentleman by the name of Spike, Spike White. And he would drop me off in the morning at one end of that stretch of highway with a trash pickup stick and a bunch of big trash bags. And I'd fill them up and tie up the bag and go on and do another one and so on, work my way up the mile. And then at lunchtime, he'd come out there and he'd have sandwiches and, and some, something for us to drink. And we'd sit on the tailgate of his pickup and uh, we'd have lunch together and we'd pick up all those trash bags. And then I'd start working the other side of the road and he'd come back a few hours later and pick me up. And I remember we were having lunch my first Saturday of my Adopt-A-Mile anonymous program. And uh, we're sitting there having lunch, and he's looking over, kind of squinting. He goes, didn't you pick up this side of the road already? I go, yeah. He goes, well, how come I see some stuff shining in the ditch there? And he goes, I go, well, I only pick up like aluminum and paper and other things. I don't pick up glass because it's too heavy. It might rip the bag. And he took off his hat. I'll never forget this. He was just kind of scratching his head and going... John, you are the one person who can take a bad job and make it harder, okay? He goes, do you realize now by doing that, you've bent down anyway. You're down there with it. And now, on top of picking up trash, you have to decide whether it's something you're going to pick up or not. And then when you get done with it, you're not even sure if you did a good job. So let me tell you the success, the secret to success in an adventure like this. If you're going to serve, make up your mind to serve. If you're going to pick up the trash, pick it all up. He said, by the way, that's a good rule of thumb when you're going to serve the Lord. If the Lord calls you to do something, do it all the way. If God calls you to be a good neighbor to somebody, don't wait to the occasion, then try to determine whether this is somebody you need to serve or not. Serve anybody who comes your way. The question isn't whether it's plastic or glass or whether this is somebody I need to serve or not. The question is, are you a good neighbor and willing to serve whoever God puts in your path? And the sooner you get resigned to that, 
the easier the task begin, becomes. And now I'm not having to fret over whether I need to help this person or not. I'm just going to surrender it all to Jesus. He didn't make that distinction. He considers everybody on the planet his kids. He didn't die just for a few of us. He died for all of us. And the sooner we get past this notion that I have to discern all this, the easier life becomes. We can just love whoever. And so, in this last point, I've just unpacked four characteristics of being a good neighbor. And just like you'll hear if you come around center point, pretty often you're going to hear all about, it's all about relationships. We're also going to hear these four things more than once. Come here for a few years. First of all, to be a good neighbor, you and I must become aware. We must become aware of the people around us. You and I can walk right by people who are suffering or in need and never even know. Philippians chapter 2, verse 4, Paul says, Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And I have a note right below that verse. The greatest hindrance to our awareness of others' needs is hurry. It's hurry. You don't have to take my word for it. There was a study done in 1973 at Princeton. It was done by two uh, sociologists named Darley and Batson. You can Google uh, Good Samaritan Study and Princeton, and this is the first thing that will come up. It's become world famous. In 1973, these two sociologists set out to do a study to figure out why on earth the priest and the Levite would walk around. What might have caused them? I mean, Jesus doesn't tell us why. We just know they didn't stop to help. And so they said, well, we'd like to see once what might cause people to, do, to react this way. And so what they did at Princeton, they took Princeton seminary students from their divinity school at Princeton. And they brought them into a room one at a time, and they didn't tell them they were part of a study. They just made it part of a course at Princeton on teaching. And in one room, they would sit down. The students would have been given an assignment to prepare a talk on the Good Samaritan, or a talk on jobs at the seminary. And the professor, a couple of professors would meet with them, the sociologists would meet with them, and they would uh, help them work through their outline and other things. And then when they finished their outline, they would go, oh goodness, look at the time. You need to be giving this presentation to some of your other, some of your other classmates in another building. And to some of them, they'd say, you got about 15 minutes. Some of them, they'd say, you got five minutes, you'll barely make it. And to some of them, they'd say, you're five minutes late, you got to run right now. Now, what you also need to know is that they had had a class of people waiting to hear this presentation, but there was only one way. There was a direct route from the building where they were meeting to this other room, and there was a sidewalk, and they had an actor placed on that sidewalk, someone laying on the sidewalk, moaning in pain. I mean, to recreate this exact situation. And they sent the students to go give a talk on the Good Samaritan on the other side. And they wanted to see how many of them would stop and actually be good Samaritans to the person on the sidewalk. Well, for the students, so you'll know how it turned out, for the students who were told that they had um, plenty of time, they had like 15 minutes to get there, 63% of them stopped. For the students who only had a short amount of time, a little more than 40% of them stopped. For the students who were told they were five minutes late already, only 10% of them stopped. And they even have video footage of students literally stepping over a man lying in the road in order to go give a talk on the Good Samaritan. I'm not making this up. It's all true. And they said, 
The conclusion of this was the greatest single factor that might have caused the priest and the Levite to walk around was hurry. Because if you're in too much of a hurry, even if you want to, you've got a conflict between I need to be somewhere and I need to help someone, and that's the one thing that will keep you from helping people even though they're in dire need. In your outline, I've mentioned the antidote to hurry is margin. Not margarine. Margin, okay, I don't want you to go to the grocery store. Margin is the gap between, if this is my limit, this is the amount I can do in a day, and this is my load, the amount that I currently have on my calendar, margin is the distance between the two. Between my limit and my load. If my load is so heavy that I'm always working at the limit, I obviously have no margin. And if I have no margin, then I have no time to help you because I'm barely covering all my responsibilities now. And the problem can be we can get used to living like this, no margin. No margin, no time to help anybody else. I mean, you know how it works. Just like those people running to give their presentation on the Good Samaritan to other seminary students. And by the way, isn't it shocking that only 63% stopped even if they had plenty of time? I mean, these were seminary students. Two out of three, you'd hope it'd be better than that. But it's only 10% when you put them in a hurry. You can imagine it. Here's how it would work for you and me. Oh my goodness, my day is full. I got all these responsibilities, so I'm running late to work. Put the car in reverse back out of the driveway. I'm squealing out down my street. I'm on the cell phone calling my boss saying, I'll be there. I'm running a few minutes late. Just hang on. I'm coming. We drive right past the neighbor who's opening their mailbox, and they're standing there. They're weeping. They're reading a letter. We didn't even notice them. I mean, you see how this could happen. We jammed our schedules so full that I have no time to notice the person in the cubicle over. Hey, they haven't been to work in two weeks. What's going on there? I don't know. We have no margin. We have no time. We have no time to think of anything else. We're just pedal to the metal. Getting it done. There's no way we're going to be able to love our neighbors. We love ourselves. We've got no time. I mean, you understand. No time, no money. What am I going to do anyway? And so if you and I are going to be aware of others' needs, we've got to build in some margin or else it's never going to happen. You and I need to become aware. By the way, the Bible recommends we take one day in seven and use it as a Sabbath rest day. Time to reflect and rest. If you have anything scheduled the rest of this afternoon, take some time. Turn off your cell phone. Turn off the computer. Turn off the television. Start asking yourself, hey, who lives on my street anyway? If you don't know, you could take a Sunday afternoon stroll and walk two houses down, knock on the door and say, hey, neighbor, like to meet you. Could happen. you and I need to become aware of the people around us, in our class, in our office, in our neighborhoods. We need to become aware. We must commit to prayer. If we're going to be good neighbors, we need to start praying about things. What would you pray for? Well, first of all, just pray that you'd be able to get to know the neighbors who live around you. God, help me meet them. Help me get to know them. That'd be a great thing to pray for. 
Ephesians 6.18, And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep praying for all the saints. Be aware and pray. Pray that God will give you opportunities to reach out to them, be kind to them. It's amazing what difference prayer can make. Become aware. Commit to prayer. third one is, show we care. Show you care. I mean, the Samaritan showed he cared. The priest and the Levite didn't. Samaritan took him to an inn, said, hey, look, I'll leave my credit card. Tab runs higher. Charge it to my account. Paul put it this way in Romans 12 about how to be a good neighbor. Don't just pretend that you love others. Really love them. Hate what's wrong. Stand on the side of what's good. Love each other with genuine affection and take delight in honoring each other. When God's children are in need, you be the one to help them out. And get into the habit of inviting guests home for dinner or if they need lodging for the night. When others are happy, be happy with them. If they're sad, then share their sorrow. Live in harmony with each other. Don't try to act important, but enjoy the company of ordinary people and don't think you know it all. Wouldn't you like a neighbor like that? Well, your neighbors would like you to be like that. They'd like me to be like that. Where if they're crying in the mailbox, that somebody stopped and said, what's wrong? I mean, we can be so busy that an ambulance pulls up to a house down the street on Tuesday and we think, man, I saw that there Tuesday night. I ought to go check on them. But now I'm so busy. Now it's Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And by next week, I've forgotten about it. Wouldn't you like a neighbor who actually cared? So would I. A friend of mine, by the way, um, I remember I was doing a message on this a few years ago. And a friend of mine who's in his 70s, now in his late 70s, um, decided that he wanted to be a good neighbor. And after I gave his talk, he said, here's how I worked that out in my life. He said he'd lived in a neighborhood for a long time and a lot of his original neighbors had gotten older and had retired and some of them had passed away. So the whole neighborhood changed hands. And now a bunch of young families were moving into these homes in his neighborhood. And he was kind of like the, the old guard that was left there. And he wanted to know how to meet him. And he prayed about it a lot because he really wanted to do exactly this. He wanted to be a good neighbor to all these young families. He couldn't think of how to serve them, all these things, until somebody mentioned to him after he'd done an act of kindness for somebody, how much they appreciated it, they reminded him that he was good at making pies. His mom had always been an excellent pastry chef and had taught all of her children, her sons and her daughters, how to make pies. And so, and I had some of them, this guy could make a mean pie. And what would happen was, when these families would move in, he would go to their house and knock on the door and introduce himself as the guy who lived down the street. He wanted to welcome them to the neighborhood and that one of the things he liked to do was bake pies for people. What kind of pie would they like? apple or cherry or coconut cream or whatever they wanted. And they would place an order and then he would go beg it. And the next day, or he'd schedule a time to come back and he'd present them with a pie right out of the oven. He said a lot of times they invited him in and they'd sit down and have pie and coffee right then. He'd ask them, how can I pray for you? And they'd tell him and then stop and pray right there. He said it wasn't long before he knew every single person up and down his whole street. He knew how he could pray for each one of them. He said, who doesn't like pie? I mean, everybody loves pie. And he said, I just took what I could and I wanted to use it to be a good neighbor and serve people. Wasn't trying to act important. It was just being kind. 
And I think the realtor on the street eventually used that as a selling point. Hey, you get in this neighborhood, you get pie. Because he'd bake another one on their birthdays and stuff, and it wasn't long until he knew everybody really well. There's a fourth aspect of being a good neighbor. Become aware, commit to prayer, show we care, be ready to share. And if you don't like all that rhymey stuff, I got this from Rick Warren, the guy who wrote The Purpose Driven Life, and it's a mega bestseller, so take it up with him. Okay, anyway, it's a, I couldn't think of a better way to say these points. I agree with him. We need to be ready to share. Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, said this, you must worship Christ as Lord of your life, and if you're asked about your Christian hope, then always be ready to explain it. But you must do this in a gentle and respectful way. Keep your conscience clear. And then if people speak evil against you, they'll be ashamed when they see what a good life you live because you belong to Christ. This friend of mine said, you would not believe the opportunities. He said, I've never thought of myself as an evangelist, but you would never believe the opportunities I've had to tell people about Jesus. Why are you bringing us this pie? Why are you praying for us? Because Jesus was a good neighbor to me, and I want to be a good neighbor to you. I mean, what if you and I took this seriously? What if we did like Jesus? Jesus practiced what he preached. He was a good neighbor to you and me. What if you and I would take that same challenge and say, Lord, help me love others the way you loved me. Open my eyes, Lord, to people in my neighborhood, people in my office, to friends and family members who have needs. Open my ears to what they've been saying. And Lord, give me some margin in my life so I've got time to actually listen and help and do something about it. And what if we made that decision today to be good neighbors like Jesus? Because it's one thing to talk a good game, and the expert in the law did that. Oh, I know the right answer. Oh, I know the right answer. Love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbors yourself. Right. Now do it. Well, who is my neighbor? The whole story. Which one was the good neighbor? Well, the Samaritan. Right. Be like him. And that would be the challenge for us today. Who is Jesus? He's a good neighbor. Who does he want us to be? Good neighbors to the rest of his kids. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the opportunity to be here, and I thank you, Lord, that you love the whole world. I thank you we have mission trips out right now in Nicaragua and Mexico, others heading to Peru soon and Haiti. Lord, you love the whole world. Lord, you want us to love the whole world. I pray, O God, that we would not turn a deaf ear to the cries of the poor and the sick and the needy. If you want to be a good neighbor this morning, well, we have just a minute of prayer here. If you want to be a good neighbor, would you pray right now and join me in prayer? Lord, I want to be a good neighbor. I want you to open my eyes to things I've, I've been missing. Lord, I want you to open my ears to conversations I need to hear. And God, I want you to help me set some margin in my life so I can actually do something about it. I mean, if you're serious about this, just pray and say, Lord, I want to be a good neighbor like you. If you mean it, pray it. He'll hear you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus who lived our lives, who died our death, who rose again on Easter Sunday, who's sitting at your right hand right now, interceding for us, and one day is coming home, coming back to get us. One day soon. I pray, Lord, until he returns, Heavenly Father, that we will be good neighbors. 
and love others the same way you've loved us. I pray, Lord, that this week, on Monday and on Thursday, it's easy to pray about this now and we're sitting in a nice, comfortable place and we've been singing worship songs. I pray that you'd remind us of this this week when it's not so easy. And I pray, Lord, you'd give us the courage we need to get involved in some complicated situations. I pray that you'd give us words to say when we get there. And I pray, Lord, you'd put ideas in our heads, whether it's just having some friends over for dessert or just asking somebody how they're doing. I pray, Lord, that we'd be good neighbors and then do whatever comes next. Show us how to respond and love people the way Jesus did. We pray these things in the name of Christ, the best neighbor ever. Amen.